Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, just a really quick reminder to all the seniors out there, in just three days, there is a very important deadline at a few schools, October 15th. It does seem to start earlier and earlier every year, but make sure that you're ready to submit. And if you're ready to submit, don't wait until the 15th. Get it out the door now. Um, there are going to be a lot of people pressing send on that date, and you don't want to have technology issues because a lot of colleges will tell you, well, you should have had it in before, and my technology, your technology issue is not my problem. So don't wait until the very last minute. And the FAFSA is also available. It became available on October 1st. And so today, one of the things we're going to be talking about is whether or not you should fill it out. Um, There are some questions about that, and we're going to do our best to give you some answers. And in office hours, we're going to be talking about standardized test scores, specifically around those of you filing applications, when to submit them, which ones to submit, uh, all that good stuff. We're going to be tackling that. But before we get to that, um, my colleague and former Swarthmore and Drexel College admissions officer, Kenan Dick, is here, and we're kicking off a brand new series called Standing Out. Hi, Kenan. Hi, how are you, Beth? I'm good, thanks, and thanks for joining us today. Um, Sure. So we were talking before the show, uh, one of the most common questions that we get through our listener listener question, um, we ask you all uh, to submit questions, and one of the most common questions that we receive is, how can I or how can my student stand out in the college application process? And every time I see it, I I have a little inward sort of like, oh, it just, it's, <laughs> it's such a, uh, I, I, I don't know where to start and it makes my head hurt. Uh, and, right. and I think, you know, the reason for that is because it's simply not an easy question to answer. So why don't we start there? Why in your, in your mind is it so difficult to answer that question of how can I stand out or how can my student stand out in the process? Well, I think the difficulty would be if, if, if we actually had an answer, think about it this way, if we had an answer to that question, right, and mm-hmm. we said, okay, if there's some prescription that we could give you that's going to help you stand out, what would happen? Everybody would do that one thing, right? And then, yep, yep. by definition, you'd be just like everybody else. And so what typically happens in, you know, when we're reading applications and we're working with students is that the students that stand out the most tend to be the ones who kind of um, do something different. They, they kind of follow their own path or they have an aspect of their life or their aspect of their interests that they pursue 100%. And wherever that takes them is going to be their own path. And that, by definition, is going to help them be a little bit more unique. And I think, you know, when, we, when I reflect back on, you know, some of those days when we're sitting in committee, we're talking about all these applications and the ones that stand out, those tend to be those kids that have done just that. They went in the direction they wanted to go in. They didn't um, prescribe to any kind of, um, you know, specific 
formula. And right. I, I think that a lot of parents just want us to tell them what to do so that, you know, that, they're, that they have some sort of belief where if they just do these five steps, then they're going to have a student who's successful in what they want to do. Right. And or where they you know, certainly for like a UT Austin or something like that, if you're just in the seven, the top seven percent of your class, then you're auto admitted into the into the school. And you know there are a couple of exceptions like that, but for the most part, in highly selective admissions, it's because of those different paths and the different ways that the students walk that allow them to be a little bit different. And there's right. lots of different examples of that. Yeah, and I mean, I would say, too, that, um, and and just for clarification, so today, Kenan and I are really talking in general terms about standing out, and the series, we're going to tackle some of the individual um, ways and really dig into things like extracurricular activities and, and things like that, where students can, uh, that's one element of the, of the application where a student might stand out. But even if we take a step back from the highly selective level, you know, I'm thinking of a student who I worked with a few years ago who was a C student. Um, She was not a great student. She came to me because um, she was talking to her school counselor and getting a list of schools that she wasn't interested in, that she didn't like. And she was hoping that there might be some options out there that maybe were available to her that she just hadn't heard about yet. And mm-hmm. I think the, the counselor was very narrowly focused um, in our geographic area or in her geographic area. And so one of the things we did was look outside of that. But one of the other things I did was take a look. You know, when you're a C student, uh, generally that means that maybe school is difficult for you. And so you're doing what you need to do to graduate, the minimum, but you're not necessarily doing more than that. And so one of the things that I had her do was add back a couple of classes to her senior year curriculum so that she was going to do three cores uh, and and then kind of fill in with um, just some courses that were, you know, not really considered academic in nature. And I encouraged her to add back um, foreign language. And I think um, there was another science, even though she'd fulfilled her high school's requirements. Mm-hmm. That helped her stand out a bit, I believe. She did end up getting into one of her reach options. Um, we did find some schools that were interesting to her. But for her, what helped her stand out a little bit was doing something different than what. So it does line up with what you're saying. They did something different. She did something different than maybe some of the students who were in that kind of not a, not a high achiever, um, kind of doing what they needed to do to graduate. She went a little above and beyond. And I think what that showed the college was that she was getting a little more mature. She was committed to going above and beyond, and they knew that going to college was going to be above and beyond for her, so it made them feel better about that choice. So that's just one example that I would throw out there. Um, but, you, you know, I know you have a bunch. So what are some other ways that you've seen students, whether students that you've worked with or when you were doing admissions uh, and they were in your applicant pool, some things that maybe they did that helped them stand out for you? Right. Yeah, and I, and I think that um, that there's you know, there are a couple ways to think about that concept that, that we often think of match. And, you know, oftentimes when you have a student who, you know, like your student is kind of going above and beyond to, to try to establish, you know, the, um, that, um, that interest in a, a particular school, we, we often think about, you know, how well their interests match up with, with our offerings. 
but also the, the opposite can also be true. I remember um, we had a student who applied to Swarthmore College, and Swarthmore College is notoriously a very liberal campus. And, and he came to, uh, to Swarthmore um, and said, you know, I'm a pretty conservative person. And uh, during the interview, you know, we were discussing, you know, well, why, why do you want to come to Swarthmore College if it's not, you know, if it's not, you know, a, a conservative campus? And he said, and it was really interesting, he said, basically the way that I want to approach um, my education is like a constant red team. And, you know, in the military, when you have a red team, their job is to try to see all the ways that you can mess up an operation, right? And in mm-hmm. business, it's the same kind of thing where you, you know, think of all the different ways that your business plan could fall apart. And you and try to identify those weaknesses, and so his idea was: I'm thinking of Swarthmore as one four-year red team of all of my ideas. And as a conservative, if I can walk out of Swarthmore College with you know with my ideas totally solid, they are going to be as about as red teamed as possible. And I'm going to know that those are bulletproof ideas and bulletproof views because I've been arguing for them for the past four years. And so he had a totally different um, kind of approach to how he wanted, what he wanted to get out of his education. And we thought that that was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, and pretty unique, too. So Very unique, yeah, especially for, you know, a 17 or 18-year-old to be thinking that way. Right. Um, But also it can be just about a student's passions and where that takes them. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a unique passion. Um, there's one of my students, uh, his name was Jason, and he was really into history, and he grew up in the New Rochelle area uh, in New York, and he discovered that the Thomas Paine um, house was just a few miles away from where he lived. And so he, um, and having studied it in, in high school, he went down there and, and actually became a docent for the Thomas Paine house. He, you know, read A to Reason, Common Sense, Rights of Man, and, you know, all the different pamphlets. He really got into it, and he was one of their best docents and just loved the history of the house and, and Thomas Paine's legacy. And mm-hmm. so that was one of the things that really kind of helped him stand out was that he just, he saw an opportunity to really immerse himself in U.S. history, and especially really specialize in one area of it, and jumped on that opportunity. Right. So sometimes it's just wherever, you know, that their hearts kind of lead them that can help them, you know, as you know, we've been saying, stand out in, in a certain way. But it's not as if that he had a talent that wasn't, um, you know, that other students couldn't also do, right, mm-hmm. um, that wasn't reputable. So the, the idea, I think, is just to, to, you know, to follow those passions, to do the things that you really are interested in doing, to highlight those um, experiences that you might have in your life that, that might be different about your experiences versus others. Another one of my students, um, Hannah, spent because her dad was on assignment, spent three years in Singapore uh, during middle school. And that was really formative to the way that she looked at her education. And so when she returned to the States, it, it helped her really take advantage of a lot of opportunities that normally she wouldn't have taken advantage of, um, having been a student here, you know, for all of her life. So sometimes right. it can be those types of unique experiences that also can help a student stand out. But, um, but highlighting the aspects of that experience that make, you know, her different, I think are, is part of what helps a student, um, you know, set themselves apart in an application pool. 
Right. And, you know, on the flip side of that, something that um, I have, I don't know if I've talked about on the radio show before, but certainly that I've seen are choices sometimes that students make that cause them to blend in rather than stand out. So I know today we're talking about standing out, but, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that I remember vividly from my time at Penn was that I would, I, my part of reading season, I would have to read 30 files in a day. And Mm -hmm. there were days where I would literally have 30 files to go through. um, And all 30 students would have selected biology or chemistry as their intended major, and would be talking about their desire to be a doctor in their application. Um, And there were some other similarities between those students as well. But, you know, basically, they took they were bright kids with interesting lives, but their applications were so similar that it was hard to get super excited about them because, uh, you know, after the 15th one, you're thinking, oh, my God, you know, great. Oh, look, you want to major in bio and be a doctor. Woohoo. So, you know, you do also have to think about um, sometimes the path that is seems clearest and like this is what I need to do and I know the steps I need to take to get there. And if everyone you know is doing that, um, that is might be a sign that, gee, maybe I need to explore this from a different angle or think about this differently. Or, you know, do I really need to major in bio? Or are there other things I could major in? I can still maintain that interest or desire to be a doctor, but maybe there's some, some other way that I can look at this that will help me stand out a little bit more. So, um, you know, that that's an example, I think, of choices where that cause you to blend in a little bit, where students aren't doing what you're saying, where they're kind of like, hey, I have this kind of cool interest. I'm going to follow up on this. But more mm-hmm. so, it could just be what you're choosing to focus on in your application. Um, we have time for one more, uh, one you know, basically one more example. So if you have, I know you have a bunch. So if there are another one or two that you want to um, share, uh, I want to I wanna get those in. Sure. Well, uh, sometimes, and I think one of the points that needs to be made is that sometimes you just don't know what it is that's going to stand out about you. So, you know, I remember distinctly there was, um, you know, a a student who was a really strong athlete and, um, and, you know, you would think that that would have been their, their standout feature. But we're sitting in committee, and I remember at the end of early decision committee, uh, our dean says, oh, geez, that's right, we need a French horn player who's got one. And so we kind of dive into our applications. We're looking for, you know, a good French horn player. And this athlete was also a French horn player. And so that was the characteristic and the talent that made the difference for that student that day. Right. And so you, sometimes you just don't know what it is that's going to be, you know, important about your profile or the things that you do or the talents that you have that's going to make the difference for you. So I think that sometimes it's about representing the full person as much as possible so that, if you have something that's needed that day, you can take advantage of that. Right, right. Yeah, that's good advice. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Nope, that's fine. That's fine. So I, I think that sometimes we just have to think about this, that you know, if, if you're asking this question and, and you want to, to try to stand out, chances are that the way that you choose to do that might take you down the wrong path. And chances are that you know, you're not the first person to think about this you know, formula, if you will. And you're going to wind up as, you know, one of those the students that you were just talking about who, you know, has a similar profile to so many other people because they think this is the way to do it. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. So if, yeah, you know, you could branch out a little bit and, and, you know, it, it, to your point, lots of kids are interested in history. So finding an interesting and unique way to, to explore your interest in history, those are, that's really the secret to it. You don't necessarily have to do something crazy and wacky that no one else has done before. You just have to think about, are there different ways to go at this that might be a little bit more unique? Um, exactly. Yeah, and we're you know we're gonna like I said this is the start of a series and we're gonna talk more about this um, in the in coming shows. So hopefully there'll be some additional concrete takeaways um, for people out of this. But uh, just know that if you ask someone who is an expert on admissions, college admissions, well, how do I stand out? They're probably gonna roll their eyes internally at you and think, <laughs> "Oh my God, that's such a question, and I can't possibly answer it unless you have nine hours." Um, so, yep. uh, but thank you all for submitting that question because I do think it's a really great spark for um, for this series. And and um, clearly, if you ask it, lots and lots of other people have asked it too. So we're 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 going to try and give you some information that will be useful. Kenan, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. All right. Well, uh, don't go away up next. We're going to be talking about whether or not you should file the FAFSA as part of your college applications. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio. Live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Would you like to be the change you see needed in the world? Are you ready to make a difference? If so, tune in to Voice for Truth with hosts Sharon Wyckoff and Jude Albright. Every show will be filled with inspiring content to support you in recognizing your greatness. Guests will share their expertise. Youths will tell how they are making a difference. You too can be a Voice for Truth. Listen live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm excited to have my colleague and former financial aid officer at Emerson College, among a few other places, Stacy McFeeders here today. Hi, Stacy. Hi, Beth. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, all right. So the FAFSA came out on October 1st. Uh, this is the second year, right? Second year in a row it's been available on October 1st? Yep, or am I? Yes, that's what I thought. All right. Um, and one of the questions that does come up uh, in in our work um, is whether or not someone should file the FAFSA. And um, so, yeah, great, it's available, but is this something I want or need to do? And so, I guess I'm going to start out by asking that question: should Should I file the FAFSA? So it's a great question, and like you said, it's one we get all the time, and, and my very short answer is yes. Um, certainly we'll elaborate on that, but, you know, when a family is looking at college, particularly first-time applicants, I always suggest that families complete the FAFSA for the first year. Um, there's a variety of reasons why they might want to, even if like, they feel like they may not be eligible, it's definitely an exercise that I encourage families to go through. All right, so um, let's talk about which families should file the FAFSA. It sounds like, in your opinion, all of them should. Um, so what are some reasons why you would want to file the FAFSA? Great. So, you know, I think when, when families think about filing the FAFSA, there's always a lot of assumptions about whether or not they think they're going to qualify. Um, so first and foremost, I would suggest to families, if you don't know if you're going to qualify, even before you begin the, fi- the FAFSA filing process, go out and do an EFC or expected family uh, contribution calculator or a net price calculator that are available on all of the college websites. Because even when you think you might not have, el- have eligibility for need-based financial aid, you just might. Um, and even if you've done that and you're not sure, you're on the cusp, I definitely encourage you to go ahead and do that. Because first and foremost, why would you want to leave money on the table if it's out there? So that's kind of the first answer. Right. The second answer is really, um, you know, you never really know what schools are looking at or what they're looking to do in any given year. Um, so, again, it kind of goes back to that whole notion of why leave money on the table. Um, we've seen strange exercises in past years where schools may have wanted to do some data analytics, so they offered some type of a, um, a little incentive to everyone who completed the FAFSA. I remember several years ago there was a school that gave a $500 grant to everyone who completed the FAFSA just for completing it because they were looking to do some very significant analytics that year. Um, and again, there are schools that might simply want you to complete the FAFSA for, you know, for not only need-based eligibility, but maybe even their merit considerations. Um, it's a little bit more rare in that case, but I generally suggest, you know, go through the exercise your first time. Um, in the worst case scenario, you know, you, you may not be eligible. Um, but there's the, the one other example that I'm thinking of off the top of my head is even if you think you're not going to be eligible for need-based financial aid, 
but you as a family want the student to borrow the federal student loans for which they'd be eligible, or perhaps parents want to borrow the Parent PLUS loan, FAFSA filing is actually a requirement for both of those programs. So again, a variety of reasons why you should consider filing the FAFSA, um, and, and that's usually a pretty good starting point. Got it. So with that in mind, um, is there any reason not to file the FAFSA? Can you think of a time when maybe it would harm a student in the process to file the FAFSA or, you know, there would be negative consequences? Yeah, absolutely. So generally speaking, there really aren't any significant negatives. The one instance where I can think of where families very often focus this, this particular question is if it's a family that is um, that knows they have no need and feels like the student might be on the cusp of admissibility um, and the school is not considered need-blind, it may be worth considering whether or not they really want to, to go through the process. So I've thrown a lot of mm-hmm. jargon out there. I can kind of go back and step through that again. But, again, family feels like they have significant resources and can handle covering the balance on their own. Right. Um, the school has indicated that they um, do, they, they do consider a, a family's financial circumstances in their consideration, in their admission consideration, so they would very often refer to themselves as need-aware. And if that same family feels that the student might be on the cusp of being admitted, they want to show that they are no need, um, that might be an area where they might consider not completing the FAFSA. Um, all of those things would have to be pretty, pretty in alignment for that to occur. Um, but it, it, it's, it's, you know, like I said, pretty rare, but it could be a consideration for some families. Is there an argument to be made in that situation that um, if they are trying to show that they have the resources to send the student, that actually filing the FAFSA might really show that they have the resources because it will provide the school with a picture into their financial situation and the school will see, oh, these people definitely can afford it, which might in turn then make the student more attractive, potentially? Absolutely, and it's funny because that would have been my, my counterpoint <laughs> to my own argument. Um, so absolutely, so that, that is exactly sort of the counterpoint, which is if you are absolutely no need, then putting it out there demonstrates it ex- you know, exclusively. So I think that that is definitely the counterpoint to that argument. Um, right. So yeah, absolutely. What you don't want to do, though, is sort of hold back. Say, for example, you're a family who really believes that you, that you have price sensitivity and that you are going to need some, some assistance. What you don't want to do is say, wait, we're not going to file the FAFSA now. We'll file after we've been admitted. That way they won't yes. know how much we need. That yep. can backfire. Um, so that's something you want to, to, to be careful not to do because that, that definitely would not work in your favor. You know, one thing that I see a lot, so there is um, there's a Facebook group for counselors where people kind of type, they put in questions that they are dealing with with some of their parents that they're working with, things like that. And, um, you know, one question that came up recently that I thought was kind of interesting was that in a divorce situation, you know, one of the parents didn't want to fill out the FAFSA or separating that out, forget the divorce, parents not wanting to fill out the FAFSA because they're not wanting to give their information. They don't want the the government to have their information. My immediate reaction to that was, well, the government has your information. I mean, unless you're, <laughs> yeah. unless you are not paying taxes and, or are fugitives from justice, or I suppose are here illegally um, and therefore maybe potentially have that, 
that's a whole other thing. Um, is that a, a fear? I, I, I mean, I can't tell someone their fear isn't warranted, but to me that seems a little silly, and I was curious about your reaction to that. Yeah, yeah, we hear that a lot. You know, and I'd even take it one step further, and it's those families who don't want to help with college. Um, yep. So they maybe don't want to provide information, they don't want to help. So I understand all of those arguments, and having been a former director of financial aid, I, I, you know, I heard it all the time, but the reality is this. It's very, very rare that a student wouldn't, particularly a, a traditional, you know, first-time applicant, dependent student, wouldn't have to provide some sort of parental information. Um, the rules are pretty clear that if the student isn't married, isn't a graduate student, doesn't have dependents of their own, isn't a veteran, wasn't a ward of the court, they are considered dependent for federal financial aid, regardless of tax status. Right. So in the absence of that parental information, the student isn't going to, have, isn't going to be able to get any eligibility. Um, so for parents who have that concern or the fear, I hear you with the fear, but the reality is they've got your information anyway. Maybe right. not in that format, but it's somewhere else. Um, and then for those families who don't want to contribute, providing your information doesn't require you to contribute. But it does. It, it is required for the student to even con- be considered for eligibility, and then how the student figures out their balance beyond that would certainly be a family discussion. But you certainly are not obligated to hand over any cash just by providing your information. Right, but you're not going to get away with not providing the information if the student's going to apply for financial aid. They're just there's no way around that, and I think that's a really key and important point that you're making. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Yep, agreed. Yeah. Okay. Uh, any. Anything else on this topic that you want to make sure that we we discuss? I mean, I think um, next week we're talking about some tips on how to fill out the FAFSA. And um, there are some schools where, of course, the FAFSA, filling out the FAFSA is not the only step in the process, um, where they also require the CSS profile. But but anything anything else that... Um, you would want to note about this big picture question of whether or not a family should actually file. Yeah, the one thing that I've been that I was thinking about as we've been talking is you know there's one other set of circumstances. You know, you, we've made all of the arguments, but there's that one last consideration that is it's not a bad idea to have that FAFSA on file to create a benchmark of your of your financial circumstances. So let's say for example, you're a family that's no need, you're not sure you want to file, but you know what, things could change in your circumstances so that you might later need to to consider need-based financial aid. Not Mm -hmm. a bad idea to have that original FAFSA on file so that it creates a benchmark for the school, and then later if something changes, there's a job loss, God forbid there's a death in the family, medical expenses, a natural disaster. We've certainly seen a lot of that. And you suddenly have a change in your financial circumstances and you have need, it's not a bad, bad idea to have that benchmark. So, you know, as we tally up all the reasons to do the FAFSA, they certainly outweigh those that, 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 um, that, that indicate not to. So just one last right. sort of final tip. And and I did I actually did want to go back to what you were saying earlier, which is this idea of oh, we won't file it now, we'll wait, and then when my student is admitted, we'll file the FAFSA then. And you said don't do that, and there's a really good reason why you don't want to do that. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit about the kind of that piece of it of when you file? Yep, absolutely. So the reason you want to do that up front is you want to be considered for everything that the school might have to offer. So if you complete the FAFSA after the student's been admitted, you'll still have your federal eligibility. So you'll still have your student loans, your federal work study. If you're very needy, you'll still get your federal Pell Grant. However, you are probably leaving on the table anything the school might have offered to you. 
Um, many schools will offer grant dollars. Um, in, in, I can tell you from, from experience that if we had a family that tried to game the system, as it were, um, and, mm-hmm. and decided to file the, FAFSA, uh, file the forms after our deadline, um, A, they've missed the deadline, so they're probably missing on eligibility, and B, we had a pretty steadfast rule that we didn't award institutional eligibility for those who applied after the fact, and usually schools will also institute a waiting period. Um, mm-hmm. In the case of one of the schools that I worked at, we had a two-year waiting period, so you would not be eligible for institutional aid for two years if you didn't initially file. So that's right. that last sort of, you know, don't, again, don't leave money on the table, especially if it's, if it's institutional grant aid. And and I think the, the other point I would make is don't try to game the system. You know, the system is there to try and serve you. The The colleges are not trying to figure out how to give you the least amount of money possible. They want to try and maximize their aid dollars, and they set policies in place that they feel are going to allow them to do that. And if you try to you know, go against those policies and sort of you've gotten some bad advice around, oh, well, if you do this, then, you know, you get to maximize admissions and then you still get financial aid. It's just a bad idea in general in this process, whether you're applying for aid or you're applying for admission, you know, stop trying to figure out what are the loopholes and how do I gain the system and instead figure out how do I make sure I hit the deadlines and put the best application uh, together that I can um, and that is always going to yield better results. Completely agree. Completely yeah. agree. The reality is this. Many schools have very, very significant uh, budgets for their, for their need-based financial aid. It's the reason it exists. They want to make sure everybody gets that, you know, the money for which they're eligible and make it fair across the board. So I could not agree with you more. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Stacy, thank you so much for joining today. This was really helpful. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, When we get back, we're doing school spotlight and then office hours, and we're going to do our very best to answer all the questions you might have about standardized test scores uh, and getting them into colleges for with your application. So uh, don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. 
Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We live in perilous times on a beautiful yet fragile planet. As a species, we are not doomed to self-destruct. We can live in peace and in love for one another. We can save this, our only home. We must mature. Open your mind. Soften your heart. Listen for the fate of humanity. Crucial conversations for our survival. With host Lauren N. Nile. Tune in. The Fate of Humanity airs Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Thanks for sticking with us today. Before we get to our final segment on sending out standardized tests as part of your applications, um, I did want to do our school spotlight, and I chose um, one with a beautiful picture with some fall leaves. Um, I was looking at our blog, and the picture caught my eye since it is October. Uh, Kansas State University. And I think it's interesting, Kansas State is actually in Manhattan, Kansas, which is locally known as the Little Apple. And Manhattan, New York is one of my favorite places. So I think that's kind of cool. But that's where Kansas State University is located. And it is a comprehensive research institution with uh, just under 20,000 undergraduates. So not small, but not huge either. Um, The majority of students do come from Kansas, about 77%. But out-of-staters have a really good incentive to enroll because high-achieving students can earn $12,000 a year as part of a scholarship specifically earmarked for non-Kansas residents. So for those of you who are looking at schools that might be willing to offer you some merit money, well... Kansas State might be one of them. Uh, The university features nine academic colleges and more than 250 undergraduate majors and programs. Um, Animal sciences, marketing, elementary education, and kinesiology are the most popular, but students can also study unique options like bakery science, which, by the way, I do in my head think maybe someday I'll do that as my third career, um, park management and conservation, or complete flight training as a professional pilot. So that's kind of cool. And if you're looking for some additional unusual things to get involved in, they have paintball, rodeo, and skydiving are just three of their club teams. Uh, And they also have some cool intramural options, including darts, 
I love darts, uh, foosball, and inner tube water polo. And uh, they also have a great record of producing student scholars. So thanks to the tremendous support of the Office of Nationally Competitive Scholarships, the university has graduated eight Rhodes Scholars, 12 Marshall Scholars, 29 Truman Scholars, 73 Goldwater Scholars, and 22 Udall Scholars in the last 30 years. So might be a school to check out. Uh, All right. With that, let's get into standardized tests. And here today to talk through this with me uh, as part of Office Hours is Kara Courtois, who, as you probably know if you listen to the show, is my colleague. She works with me at College Coach, and she also worked at Barnard College as a missions officer. Hi, Kara. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining me about to talk about something that we get so many questions about this time of year. I feel like every time I go into the queue, all I see is, we just got these scores back. Should we send them to these schools? When should we send them to the schools? So we're going to try and talk through all of this. Um, I think the first question I have for you when it comes to standardized test scores and seniors who are looking to add these to their applications is, how do you decide um, what to send? So some students will have taken the SAT more than once, some will have taken the ACT more than once, some will have taken both tests, uh, some will have you know, three or four subject tests. How do you recommend that students and families kind of decide which test scores to send? The first priority is always to understand the school's testing policy. So most importantly, and you can see it either on the college-specific website under their policy for what they're asking for for standardized tests. You really just want to clarify if they expect like a Georgetown mm-hmm. University, that you, you send in all of scores that you've taken. And when I interpret that all of scores, it is usually all of scores from one particular genre of testing. So if you took mm-hmm. SAT and ACT, I interpret that as send all of your SAT scores if those were the higher um, set or mm-hmm. all of the ACT scores. So that, um, because at the end of the day, the, you want to follow what the, the college is asking for, um, but we know they're going to focus on the highest scores that you're sending. So mm-hmm. I think that's the key thing is to figure out, you know, what is it that that school is asking for? Some schools, you know, really say, uh, send us your highest. That's fine. <laughs> you know, send right. us. If you take in the SAT twice and it's clear that, say the March exam wasn't your best uh, testing, but then in June you came back much stronger than for many schools that say, you know, utilize score choice, that's fine, we're fine with that, then you would just send the June testing and, you know, go with that process. So I think the key thing is first to figure out what's their uh, policy, and if they're asking for all scores, I always think it's important since you sign an application that everything is true. Um, to the best of your knowledge, that you do follow that policy. Yes. And, you know, one thing I would add is that there are a few different schools of thought about this, but I'm a big believer that um, if a school is going to employ score choice, and by that we mean they're going to mix and match the different sections of the SAT to give you your best composite score, or in some cases, they're going to recalculate a composite score on the ACT based on your individual section scores. Um, I do believe if, if you have a high in one section, that 
you should send that test. Um, yeah. In very limited cases, have I ever recommended, you know what, there's something in there that's so low that I just wouldn't even want the college to see it. Um, because my experience is colleges are looking for reasons to admit you, not for reasons to deny you. And they don't look for those low scores. They look for the high scores, especially if they're considering the highest score you achieve in each section. So if you took the ACT twice and, you know, yeah, you got a 25 in the science, but the second time you took it, you got a 30, I wouldn't not want to show them that ACT score if there was another section high in it just because you got a 25 because you got the 30 and they're considering the 30. So... You know, we're we're a little bit in danger of getting too bogged down in this, but I, I can say that in general, you just want to try and put your best foot forward. And um, and if in that case, it means that you're going to show them two different sets of scores that each represent a couple of specific highs, then I would do that. Um, I couldn't agree more. And okay. I often say to families, you know, keep in mind that, they're not actually having admissions counselors like our former jobs. We really didn't talk about it. <laughs> we mm-hmm. didn't speculate. What were right. those other scores? It was really what was in front of us is what we focused on, which at the end yes. of the day is, you know, the, the best set of scores that a student sent in. So I do feel like nine times out of ten, students should do what has always been the process and just send you know, whatever they have generally sat for, unless there's something that's a complete outlier and quite unusual, you know, as you were mm-hmm. saying. Um, yep. And the, the school's policy allows them to utilize score choice. But most right. students are just sending, you know, what they have sat for. Right. Very quickly, um, do you encourage students to submit formal AP scores? So there's a place on the application where you can list your AP scores if you want to report them. But um, unlike with the SAT or the ACT where you have to have the scores sent from the testing organization, that's not necessarily the requirement with the AP. What is your advice on on that one? Yeah, and generally speaking, and I... Um, polled our team a little bit on this that we've never, you know, generally seen most colleges don't want the official or don't ask for the official that most applications, especially for instance, the common application have a space where you can report, self-report AP scores, but they're not then asking unlike the standardized tests where they always want an official ACT or SAT report, but they're not asking for the official. There is an occasional school, and I was just, you know, looking up NYU as an example, um, Mm -hmm. and we were discussing that, you know, before the show, where if you're utilizing their um, standardized testing options, that they offer multiple, you know, different ways that you can submit test scores, different genres of testing, and one option that they have, for instance, uh, is submitting AP scores. In that sense, then you would need Mm -hmm. to send an official score. But other than that, um, you know, there's an occasional outlier. So similar, you know, philosophy that once you have your list of colleges and you are checking what standardized tests that they would like to receive, then you just want to double check, you know, uh, if it's something different, like they're giving a, an option for students to submit scores, you just want to double check what they want, the official right. test report. Most of the time, it's n- not the case for AP scores. 
Right. Absolutely. Really quickly, just in terms of how you want to send these scores, you go to the ACT website and follow the directions on submitting scores there and um, the College Board website for SATs, subject tests, and in the rare case that you might need to submit AP scores, all of that's going to happen from the College Board's website. Okay, so next question is where to send them. Um, What do you do? uh, So there is a spot on the application where they ask you to record your test scores. It is optional. Um, What do you think? Self-report, don't self-report. It it really depends, you know, on the (laughs) the students. Some students are, you know, really waiting for their best scores potentially to come in the fall of senior year. And depending on when they took the exam, they may not have those scores yet. At the end of the day, I I personally feel that there's no admissions office that is actually going off of the information a student reports on the application itself when it comes to the testing area, that they're always looking for an official score report if the student um, is required to submit test scores at all. So I would really... um, I would really err on the side of, uh, you know, just checking the policy because especially if a student is considering test optional colleges, they mm-hmm. would um, very often not need to uh, report the scores and, and really don't want to have to um, show that information by accident. Um, I think that only because it stresses students out, the college still won't consider it if they've asked, right. you know, to yep. be not not consider their tests as part of the process. Right, and I and I the the only other thing you can do is um, once an application is submitted to one school, you can create a, another version of that application, take out the self-reported test scores, and submit it to any, any test optional schools. But I, I'm I'm of the mind. I have students leave that section blank, or if they feel strongly, I have them put it in there. I don't, you know, I think there's no easy Agreed. answer there, right? So I guess uh-huh. the one bonus of putting it in there is that sometimes that allows the application to be released more quickly after the deadline to the um, admissions officer who's going to read it. Um, but I, you know, I, I sometimes would just soon have them just rely on the official scores and send those. Um, yep. Which leads us to the next and potentially not most important, but definitely equally important question of when do you want to send these scores? Um, First big question that I have is how much time in advance do you recommend that students send their scores? Two weeks. <laughs> okay. Two weeks in advance of the deadline would be, you know, sort of a benchmark that I always give for students. And, you know, given electronic submission is technically instantaneous, it's more about how long does it often take an admissions office who often downloads the information on a Friday afternoon. I know many mm-hmm. admissions Count, uh, offices would do that, so officially doing a large download of test scores, for instance, on a Friday afternoon, and so it's another week until the next download. So I usually say two weeks in advance of when they're submitting a deadline, uh, an application, or at least two weeks in advance of the deadline itself. 
Right. And, and I'm, I actually will even tell my students four weeks because, you know, sometimes we have a conversation. I say, okay, four weeks, it's now. Send your test scores. And then the next week when we connect, did you send your test scores? Oh, I forgot. So they give right. us a little bit of a cushion. But, um, yeah. you know, it, and that actually brings up something. You don't have to wait until your application has been yeah. submitted in order to submit your test scores. So if you want to do it all at once and do it a month in advance just to make sure and feel good about it, then by all means, go about, uh, do that. Um, all right, Absolutely. we have one more minute, one quick, uh, two more questions, and that is, what is your advice around, do you wait for new scores to come in from a test you've just taken before you send them, and what, is your thought, what are your thoughts about rushing the scores, paying extra to have them rushed? I know my admissions experience, and I've heard from many people on our team that rushing is a waste of money. I think it mm-hmm. costs like thirty-five dollars <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to rush the score to have it not get there any earlier than if you just regularly send it. So, right. most important to reiterate what you said before. I said two weeks in advance, but honestly, if a student is done with their scores, you know, has taken everything and is ready to put their best foot forward well in advance of when they're submitting the application, they should send it just to get it off their to-do list and for Mm -hmm. the beauty of opening um, when they've submitted their application, they can see what's already there. So it's nice to to get the test scores in on the earlier side. So, you know, reality is that um, most students should, you know, send the scores as well in advance as they can, but you know, know that they have time to send them later on. If they've taken a fall exam, for instance, and are Mm -hmm. expecting scores to be higher or hoping, uh, they can should always email the admissions office with an update. But I would always err on the side. And this is where deadlines, you know, depending on when the school um, deadline is, if they don't have... um, If the college requires on their website, they say, we need to have a completed application, including an official test report by, for instance, October 15th, like a Georgia Tech, for instance, well, then they need the previous set of scores, even if they may not be the best set of scores. Right. Absolutely. On that website, when you dig deeper, it will say you can update us at many of colleges, but not all. Right. So you just want to clarify that and how they suggest going about it. But I always suggest to students, when a new set comes in, email the admissions department where you've submitted already. Let them know I've sent an official report but wanted to give you a heads up. These are my scores. Right. And you can also note on the application that you're taking another test. So they'll know, gee, everything else about this is great. I'd love to see some new scores. Oh, look, she's going to be taking some. Kara, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having mm. me, Beth. Uh, next week, Ian is here. He's going to be doing another segment on standing out and talking about extracurricular activities. We're going to talk about how to file the FAFSA. And um, in office hours, we're going to talk about when do you know you're ready to submit? You know, some kids drag that out. Just going to, when is it time to press that button? Uh, don't forget, we are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.